0: What isn't the first, like, iteration of the foie gras dish in there with parsnip pancakes?
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. That book, a lot of time. That with that
1: books, that, man. that recipe has gone. It's like Mickey Mouse. You know, start off with Steamboat, Steamboat Willie, Steamboat Willie yeah. right? But it, it's still the mouse at the end. You know, I mean, it's that it, it's a little fatter Mickey mouse, yeah. <laughs> a little fatter, a little happier mouse. Uh, a little more corporate mouse in, in his respect, but he's a much Finialized. more corporate Finialized. mouse now. <laughs> he ate the pancake. He ate the pancake. Yeah.
2: Yeah, let's let's run through the the intro that I know we're Oh, we're back fans to of. an intro. I Anyways. Know, know. you're listening to Bancom Podcast. I'm Nikki Menez with Mike Beltran. This is part two. So if you haven't heard part one, go back. Listen to part one. Right. Not that you'll be lost, but it's a nice foundation. Yeah, it's a good, it lets you know where we're at and what we're doing. Exactly. Uh, I'm Mike Beltran. You're Mike the Beltran. The one that's very bad at intros. Bad at in, It's not that you're bad at, you just don't like them. That's true. You know? It's uh, true. But that's fine. That's okay. We're here with Carlos you can Rodriguez. Hello to the people. Hello the people. And special guest, Norman, ben, sorry, Chef Norman Van Aken. I'm in yes. a place where people have to be chef. Yeah. I'm both. Uh, yeah. You're both. We are both, we're with chef and just Norman. Yes. Um, chef, author, chef, author. Uh, if Mike Ortiz were here, he'd be a magician. Yeah. <laughs> oh Mike. Um, so, oh, man. uh, yeah, this is part two and we are going to be talking. Uh, we were just kind of in the middle of a conversation and I'll leave it in there as a little bit of an intro yeah. thing. Uh, but we were talking about books.
0: Yeah. We, um, so the first time I was introduced to you was through, uh, a book that wasn't even yours. Uh, the Charlie Trotter book and you're holding up the big tuna I think it was and then I bought uh, New world kitchen and, and I had said it in the, in the fir- part one how much that influenced me and it's still like it's I mean I use that book all the time and there's very few books I use as often but how has that felt and been being authoring so many books and knowing that and uh, I'm sure people have reached out, um, that your work has in essence, um, really inspired so many, um, you know, just it's moved people to want to do what we do for a living and you could have never have met them. You know, like I, I say it all the time. I was fortunate enough to work for the book. I worked for the book and that was an experience that was priceless for me. But there's got to be so many people that have reached out to you over the years. It's just been like, thank you, or... You Yesterday,
1: know, like, a woman I don't know, a chef from somewhere else in the United States, I think she's from Pennsylvania, she wrote... I put you know, I put a picture of Charlie and I up because it was Charlie Trotter's birthday, and many people that love cuisine are, should know if they don't know, but many do know the um, the gifts that Charlie shared with the world, and it was my great fortune to um, become Chosen Brothers with Charlie. Um, we both loved books. We, we bonded over books, and not only cookbooks, certainly cookbooks, but not only cookbooks, but all forms of literature. Um, I had no, in, no idea about being a chef when I was growing up. Nobody spoke about being a chef. I didn't watch Julia Child on television. I didn't watch the Galloping Gourmet no one in their right mind, where I was from, talked about being a chef. Um, if you were to look for, in the one ads, for a job as being a cook in my early days, it would have been right there with, you know, if you wanted to be an exotic dancer, that's the same place in the newspaper ads that we were. If you, that. were no,
2: you, you were never in between those two options. <laughs>
1: Only in my dreams. Oh, <laughs> Nick. There he is, everyone. <laughs> oh, my God. If I could only chime in once. Uh,
0: God, you, perfect. Did, you just did it. Take the mic away from him. <laughs>
1: um, I was working in Key West, and I was really in a great spot at Louis Backyard because we looked out over the ocean. I was in Key West, and so the little restaurants around town were making straight ahead either Cuban food. Bahamian food, Haitian food, Southern food—all um, of those things were happening. There were some that were doing French cuisine, and there were some that were uh, were sort of doing uh, an amalgam of them both. Uh, I was um, I was at a place called the Pier House, and the owner, God bless him, had the sense to realize, thank you, that Key West had something special going on, and he he would go to New York and get a chef to come down to Key West. But he would say, no, no, I want the Hamian conch chowder. I want key lime pie. I want black bean soup on the menu. And so he made me realize it was okay to have these things as part of a fancy restaurant because it was in a hotel that charged a fair amount of money for that time. And I was working with chefs who were the first graduates, pretty much the first graduates out of the Culinary Institute of America, um, there were some chefs that were also old-school European chefs that worked cruise lines, came up through the brigade system in Italy or, or in France. And so I had these, these, these various streams of influence that were going on around me, and, uh, and, I, and I just loved it. I just was like, I, I finally realized there was some place that I could go in my life to find what I thought I could only find by either being a songwriter or a playwright or something to do with writing, I was a little too nervous to send in a manuscript and have it be rejected. And so I, I said, you know, maybe I can do this thing with cooking. And I found that I could express myself in a way with food that. An early thought only could happen through, write, through writing. And so the energy and the thought process process that, that I saw in cooking kind of miraculously came about in the form of a letter of invitation one day came to me from a division of Random House to the offices at Louis Backyard. I can remember, Michael, to this moment of opening the letter, reading this invitation. Dear Chef Anakin, we were recently at your restaurant, Louis Backyard in Key West, we had dinner on a Friday. We were down there for vacation, no, in, no intention of doing any kind of like business whatsoever. We love the food so much, we came back the following night. So I have two questions for you, she wrote. Have you collected your recipes over the years and would you like to write a cookbook? I wrote back, yes. Lying that I collected my recipes over the years, and yes, I'd like to write a cookbook, which wasn't a lie, because of course I would. I would. I didn't think I was ever going to be approached by then. It was just not in my head. I remember floating, almost floating up in the air, just going, shit, my life is changing. This is going to be something we're going to do. And I went home that night, Michael, and I had a, uh, a desk pad at our, our rented house uh, in Key West where Janet and I were living, Justin was a little baby still at the time a little boy and on that on that desk blotter I wrote the introduction in rough form to the book Feast of Sunlight and then I wrote all these recipes, all these names of dishes that I we had served at Louis' backyard um, I didn't even have a computer at that time you know, I, I got a typewriter and I sent it to them and said here's my ideas and a year later a Feast of Sunlight came out, it was one of the very first cookbooks uh, written by an American chef, the first cookbook written by a chef from Florida. And it wasn't long after that we were going on a book tour of America, going to all the cities that I'd been reading about. And now they said, well, while we were in that town to do the television shows and radio shows and the interviews, at night you can go to a restaurant that you want to go to. And so we just studied hard about all the different restaurants that could be gotten to in los angeles detroit chicago boston new york and back then there was a budget for these things that doesn't exist pretty much anymore unless you're a major television star Um, and so feast of sunlight was something that i did in the office after i finished my shift cooking cooking the saute line position at louis and um and then we tested the dishes and turned into Feast of Sunlight. And that was, at that point in time, I was somewhere between the world of representing Florida, but also still holding on to the training wheels of the French and Italian things that were my, you know, my teachers still at that point in time. It was not until a little bit after that that I began to more clearly move away from the safety net of the European design and begin to think much more about Florida. So then when I wrote... The subsequent books, increasingly, I drilled down on trying to represent where we lived, first Key West, then Miami. And in doing that, I created a a template, a paradigm for the recipes that we would teach the cooks in the restaurant and how to make the dishes that we would make. And so I was able to get double duty out of it. I was able to hone my abilities as a writer but also begin to be much more clear as far as what I was about, what I wasn't about. And so then I just kept going. Every book was another place I wanted to learn from. New World Cuisine was really kind of a Charlie-like book uh, because by the time that book came out, Charlie was being published because Charlie hadn't been published until after I did Feast. Um, Although we worked together before that, but by the time I did New World Kitchen, what I was doing there was I was seeking to educate myself about all of South America because I'd I'd learned a lot about Caribbean food by that time by working in Key West and by writing Feast of Sunlight. But when I did New World Kitchen, I threw myself into a huge, a huge project that I thought would take maybe a year and a half and it took four years. Yeah, very all-encompassing book there's 30 odd countries that are represented in that book. And when you write the book, you have to realize you can't do 12 dishes with venison. You got to mix it up. And so even though you might've found nine good dishes with venison or snapper or whatever, you've got to make sure that at the end of the day, you've got a composition that's going to be, you know, it's going to cover the bases. Right. So in the editorial process, if it were an album, I guess I would have had 30 songs that I had to hone down to 10 or yeah. 12. And so, I mean, I I leaned on everybody that I could learn from. Yeah. We interviewed everybody that worked at Norman's at the time. Where are you from? Where are your parents from? Where are your grandparents from? What do you cook at home? We began to invite, um, especially the mothers and the grandmothers, into our test kitchen Which was where we did our corporate events at night, to make dishes from their countries. And then we would, you know, we would tape and we would write down and we would cook with them. We would study these dishes that I had really no understanding of. I didn't know Brazilian food, Argentinian food, food from Uruguay. I had no idea how incredibly diverse and powerful the food of Peru was at that time, because I had never lived in any of these places. Of course I didn't. But by by kind of restricting myself from falling on the things I had known already, we, we we learn so much. And that's why one of the reasons you write a book. You don't write books often to make money because they barely ever realize the advance. They don't. You do it out of that desire for your own self-education.
0: I think um, I've never written a book. So
1: Not yet. I'm
0: guessing. But the opportunity to really influence a future generation has got to feel huge. You know, it's got to be like, I mean, the fact that you could essentially influence a whole other generation of young chefs has got to be very gratifying and empowering. You know, like... Even, I, I mean, on the smallest scale that we are in our little slice of Coconut Grove here in the corner, the fact that some of these people have grown so much just in the two years that they've been here, for me, feels incredible. So the fact that there's six opportunities for people to read about food, whether it be your own or almost like an alliance of food, of learning, all-encompassing, it's got to be amazing, you know?
1: Um it's humbling, too, because I'm, I don't even speak Spanish very well. I can speak a little kitchen Spanish. And here I am, you know, a guy from this little town. I mean, the town I'm actually from is 250 people. The town that I went to grade school in had 17,000 people. That's where I grew up. Fortunately, uh, my mom, again, not with any kind of foreknowledge of it, she was very influential in the sense that she had an incredible curiosity about other people, where they came from, what their culture was. She was born in New York City. And um, when uh, I was just about 10, my maternal grandfather died. So our maternal grandmother, Nana, came to live with us from New York City. She never had driven a car, but she grew up in New York. And through through the time period before motorized cars through the burlesque era her father was a show business agent represented people like Al Jolson Buster Keaton played in the house with my grandmother so she brought in this worldly sort of influence that I would have missed out on had she had not come to live with us corresponded to that my mother would bring friends home from the restaurant that she worked in and they could be from Mexico they could be from Japan and They'd make food from their respective countries. And so well before I became uh, involved in kitchens, I could see through my mom that she was open to anybody else, whatever else they were into, whatever else they were front, they were about. And so I, I was a sponge for learning from other people. It gives me an amazing amount of uh, joy that I have been welcomed into uh, the community in the ways that I've had as a as a person, also able to instruct about Latin Caribbean food. I did a dinner in Los Angeles three years ago with Jose Andras, Aaron Sanchez, Gaston Acurio, and I'm like, "What a lineup! What is this? Jeez. What is what, what am I doing here?" And they're like, We're, "You're the honorary Gringo, man. We're, you're gonna be <laughs> you're gonna be." You're going to be speaking Spanish by the time this night is over, and we drank enough Mescal to where I think I was, <laughs> but uh, to be, you know, it was the night of Latin stars. Actually, is that how it was built? They, they did four nights in a row in this uh, this incredible thing that was put on by uh, it was headed up by the um, the wife of uh, the the Los Angeles chef um, uh, Ludo, Chef Ludo. Oh, Ludo Lefebvre, yeah. Right? Yeah. From Ulramme, among yeah, yeah. other places, yes, well, the John, his, uh, his, his wife John uh and did this thing and, and one night it was the French chefs, and one night it was the American chefs, and one night it was the latin chefs, and here's norman van Aken was was one of the latin chefs so I, that was a that was a cool night it um
0: when I think about kind of being a younger cook, uh I often tell my guys like one of the biggest parts of your development is not just cooking is learning and it's applying yourself outside of actually just working you know like just because you clock out and you go home doesn't mean that your job is done uh sometimes they don't get it and sometimes they do and the really good ones um will go and they'll buy books and they'll learn and you know it'll be like chef do you know you know who sean brock is yeah, no, I know who Sean Brock is, <laughs> you know? And it's, uh, I remember one of my cooks says, I got this Sean brick book and I'm like, Oh gosh, come <laughs> on. Um, I don't know. I, I now more than ever, like my outside of work learning has increased so much because it's like, I'm learning how to build menus and how to plan for future menus. And how does a menu flow? And it's like, we talk about music all the time and it's like an album. You know, how does, how do the songs all go together? Like when you listen, originally the way the music was intended to be listened to was that you listened to the entire album, right? Side A and then the B side. And you know, we get away from that, but in reality a menu is supposed to speak to you the same way. And I think when you read a book and the books that kind of like put it down for you that way, you can kind of see your chef's purpose through writing a menu so well and you know um new world cuisine was a lot of that um I felt a lot of that in that book um it was it's just so important to the development of like where you want to go to you know and how you decide to challenge yourself and so we've talked a lot about Charlie Trotter but I I did a dinner it's got to be no it's not a year maybe eight months ago and I really wanted to challenge myself to cooking only vegetables the entire dinner. Um, and that's been a big thing for ariet as a whole, like making our food more vegetable forward and using Miami as a landscape for that. So in one of his books, he has this absolutely incredible uh, carrot tureen. I don't know if you remember that. Of course. I yeah. Do. So... I was like, you know, I'm going to make this dish, but my way. And uh, hopefully uh, honors the chef who created it. So it was like, um, and I think I shared this with you, but it was uh, set in a star fruit uh, gilet. We had taken star fruits and preserved them. And we made a gelée and baby carrots from Bee Heaven. And uh, we made a kale agua chile. Um, it was a very interesting dish, but it, it shows... That when you study enough, uh, and, that, and that terrine had always intimidated me forever, my entire career. Because, you know, uh, charcuterie has always been a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love. And you do it well. Thank you. Um, Pâtés, terrines, uh, mousses, all that stuff I feel like is a forgotten part of the kitchen that people need to really, like, get into. Anybody
1: can turn over a steak on the grill. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not to say I'm undermining anybody's contributions but you're showing true craft when you can do things like that yeah if in pastry you're making a proper souffle I mean yeah you know Jacques Pepin's omelette will live forever forever it's the craft of it absolutely and the learning of it this is exactly why it will never sometimes we'll say hey why don't you retire shouldn't you retire by now and I'm like what and quit the whole opportunity it is for me to continue to learn I would never quit I mean it's not because of money although you know we all have money to deal with in our lives but it's it's the ongoing joy of learning yeah that that is there and you you can learn from anyone too that's what's great about cuisine is that somebody has a skill I was cooking in Key West and we had a we had a fairly surprisingly large group of people in our in our restaurant at that point had come from eastern europe uh from belarus and places like this it was a whole other thing people had never lived in key west before but for economic reasons they had settled in key west this one man who was like built like a brick shit house, but he was 70 years old made this most delicately incredibly impossible subtle uh noodles that he served to for family meal to the to the people in the kitchen one day and I'm like you know Boris that was incredible uh, can I make the filling and you make the noodles of course chef of course and he was like rocked that I was asking him to participate in a dish that was going to end up on the menu on the tasting menu and because he had this skill with this particular noodle dough and the, and the way that he filled his things so I'm like huh I am. I am so yeah. putting that in. Rewind
0: a long time ago uh, when I was at Tuyo, and I remember you had just hired me. Um, subsequently, the guy who worked grill quit uh, like two weeks after that. So I.
1: You're a hard act to follow.
0: <laughs> no, no, I I, I I took his job. Remember, I I took. Okay. I uh, he just stopped. Whatever. So I remember part of our daily things was we had to make family meal every day, uh-huh. and um, I made my grandmother's tamal en cazuela recipe, mm. and it was the first time I ever done it, and I was super stressed out because my grandmother's recipe. I was like, I don't want to fuck the shit up. So I made it, and um, you tried it, and you were like, "Man, this is really good." And I was like, "Thanks." <laughs> And then the next week you were like, what if we put that tamale on the menu? I, mean, I don't know if you remember, we put it on the tasting menu. We served I it with shaved truffles. Yeah. In the little Lake Creuset molds, And that was the first time I ever had the honor of putting anything on one of your menus. And it was, I, I remember as a younger person, I was like, wow, like, fuck me. I just put a dish on Norman Van Like, this is incredible, you know? always remember that experience because it showed me the value of that was the first time I learned the value of that soulful, meaningful cooking and how that is the first thing. And I had done a fuck ton of weird things that I had presented to you at that time already. (laughs) And, um, but that was the first thing that you were like, this is delicious. And it was one of the more simple things I had ever done. And that was the first time that, and it took me years after that for me to realize like, you know, the answer was in front of me the whole time. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel. We want to find those wheels that make you feel, that make you feel, you know, like something that gives you like, it tugs at your heartstrings. That dish will forever mean the world to me. And it lived on the area menu for a long time. Um, It's not on there now, but it's making a comeback on our winter menu. Come see us in October. Um, But yeah, like that was. It's interesting that you brought up that. I love the
1: collaboration. I. I mean, I'm at you know I'm at this age that I'm at now. To one of the greatest joys I have is seeing you and your generation and the ones that are ten years older than you, and so on. How you spin, how how you develop, how you have found your, your voice better through having worked in the kitchens that we tried to foster, which is a very collaborative spirit that we try to have. I mean, front of the house, too. Um, but I love that. I love to, to see how you and Matt and Geo here um, and now Devin and how you folks are going to now, you know, your story is going to come forward in your own way. That to me as the, you know, the old director that I've been, that um, I am, um, this is this is one of the reasons why it doesn't get dull. I am not, I am never going to be satisfied just making my tried and true, my signature dishes, the dishes that I have paid a lot of bills. More important to me is to see the, the spirit of, of learning, collaboration, growth, investigating, travel, what that does for you and how you then make your story evolve yeah. without being, um, you know, without copying the dishes that you, that you maybe saw somewhere else, but at least, you know, grasping the spirit of these things and go, I am going to do that, but I'm going to do this in the way that's, is also part of my lineage. Mm. That's fantastic. I love it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the bigger, I, I the conversation of being a chef, I think in today's world has changed. And I think that there was a time period that it was always like, what's cool and what's new. The chefs that really excite me are the ones that are like telling a story, you know, and, uh, when you eat their food, you can feel that. You can like really sense it. It's not just robotic approach, you know? And I always, I I go back a lot to when I was younger, uh, I've had the opportunity to work for some really amazing people. And they asked me, you know, how was it working for Norman? And I was like, I learned when I worked for you how to challenge myself to think outside of the box, but still respect the box. And that <laughs> it's so lost on people, that idea, you know, like thinking outside the box, but respecting the box. It's always like we just want to burn this fucking box um, with no foundation. And I mean, we, we cooked proper. You know, Sherry strat. Holy shit, man! <laughs> Fuck, if that—if people could get a window into the life of Geo Fesser for those two years making cherry strat, man, or twentieth-century uh, mole, or like just so many—the plantain crema. Poof! If people could understand, those dishes have your imprint, but the foundationary technique is technique in its essence. It is what teaches you how to cook, and that's why books are so important and not just coming out of culinary school and saying, I'm going to be a chef. It's not going to work that way. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to
1: learn how to be one. And That's a big problem. I mean, p- kids come out of the school, and they think they're ready to rumble. They're ready to like become the, the, the person who articulates a menu, and the schools are not capable of causing... That development within the two or three years that you're going to go to a school yeah, like yeah. that, you need ten years of being the woodshed before you're going to get to that place. And I think there's false expectations for sure. Um, and also there's a the hardcore process of uh, paying the bills back. And you know somebody's going to say, okay, you know we're going to make you the executive vice president sous chef of the you know the third brigade or some dreamed up title for what they're going to be. And essentially they're just going to be you know doing all hard labor. That needs to happen. I mean, there was a point in time, like where I was, over, I was, you know, overseeing a fairly large crew at the original Normans. I missed I had fifteen cooks in that restaurant at that time. We were doing three hundred covers a night, tasting menu, à la carte menu. We had twenty-one cheeses on the cheese trolley. Oh, I mean, incredible. we were we were at that place, and um, uh, I was realizing that. They were they were being really hard on themselves and for what they had not accomplished yet, where they hadn't gotten to, how they hadn't been on television, how they hadn't been in a magazine, how they didn't have their own show on the television Food Network. So I went to the to the office and I built a spreadsheet essentially saying where I was at 25, 26, 35, 40, and what I'd accomplished by that time. Okay, here I am. I'm 33. I've never made a Bear Blanc. Here I am at 37. I've never written a cookbook. Here I am at 41. I've never owned a restaurant. Okay? So you guys who are 24 years old are stepping on yourselves because you haven't done this, that, and the other thing. But you haven't given yourself time to get to that place to where it's going to come. Yeah. You have to do the foundational work for it to come. It's not like you know. I'm saying, hey, we walked to you know school through the snow, you know, and all that stuff. It's just the way it works. Whether you're a sculptor, or whether you're a musician, or whether you're a cook who wishes to be the chef of their own restaurant, there's time that you got to put in. Nothing ever happens just like on TV. It's gotta happen.
0: Well, I, I tell young cooks all the time, like going to culinary school is like a movie preview. <laughs> you got to go watch the movie. You know this is it's it's nice. It's a good time. I'm sure you had a great time because you probably didn't work while you were in school. But this is real life, and it's a, a hectic environment.
1: I wish they would. I wish they would take a little piece of advice as before you go and plunk down the tuition, at least go to some restaurant in your neighborhood, your town, whatever, and. Do a stage. At least spend a week in a real restaurant and find out whether or not that really pertains to what you think your life is going to be. I remember a really nice uh, husband and wife came to one of the cooking classes I was doing in South Miami a number of years ago, many years ago. Ariana's Cooking School. was a great place. And uh, they were well off. And they said, you know, at the end of the class, they were very excited. And they said, you know, our daughter, Matilda, she wants to go to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. And she's really excited about becoming a chef. And I'm like, wow, really? That's amazing. I knew that could swing it. And I said, uh, all right, let's um, let's let's do this, though. When, when you get home at night, one of these nights, and she's there and you're there, I want you to go into the refrigerator. And I want you to accidentally, on purpose, drop a bottle of blue cheese dressing from some height onto the kitchen floor and ask her to clean it up. And if she's afraid to clean that up or too high and mighty to clean that up, I don't think she's going to be able to handle a kitchen because that's every day. <laughs> that's the stuff. Yeah. you got to be willing to, to get in there and deal with that. Well, you know what I, I
0: think is a really interesting topic talking about, like the kitchen life. I think I came up in a very interesting time that the dynamic in kitchens were changing, but we were, they were still changing. They weren't, they're not changed and I think they're still changing today. Like, you know, the way that we treat each other and the way we talk to each other, the way that we um, kind of like the rough and ready aspect of like being in a kitchen has changed. Um, I feel like I got kind of both sides of that because, mm-hmm. you know, I worked for some really incredible older guys, like Spaniard guys that would throw paella pans at me and, but then after they would pop a beer open and have a beer with me and they'd be like, everything's fine. <laughs> and, you know, I had uh, the opportunity to work for guys like Phil Bryant. That was my chef when I worked for you that were just. I think the best way to explain Phil is like he is incredibly connected to the kitchen and he knows what it needs on a daily basis. Does that make sense?
1: phil is Phil is a precious person he he he's a he's like a an old cook in his soul oh yeah, a modern cook in his ability uh, you know how he would rather cook than he'd rather yeah sleep for sure he is that guy but uh, it, and I it, love that about him it takes
0: me back to that first service at one eighty and it was hectic and it was a big restaurant and we were like, we don't know what the fuck's about to happen here and then uh Phil looked at the saute guy station ten minutes before we opened, he's like, Get the fuck out of here. And then he worked saute. And he <laughs> fucking crushed it. You know, like and then I you know, I worked for guys like Roel and Michael. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to see like so many different dynamics. I worked with Hedy. Um just but the times that you came up in the kitchen, where do you see like the biggest changes from today's world to then? Like and I and I don't mean in because I think we see a different, I think, um, kind of like uh, personality in people. I think how much people want to work in the kitchen has changed because they want to be on covers of magazines, but they don't want to make beurre Blanc. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. What, what has really changed the most, do you think?
1: You know, Mike, I, I, in my own personal experience, I was – I was a happy warrior. I loved to be in the kitchen. I loved, I look at the clock and the clock was moving in the wrong direction for me. I didn't want it to be three o'clock. I wanted it to be two o'clock because I needed more time to make the food. When I was young and I was working in factories and places like that, I hated the clock. It was ten o'clock in the morning and I wanted to be five o'clock at night. Yeah. Um, I, I have come to understand that and for many people, the pressure and, uh, and the and the self worth situations were totally upside down for them, and they they took and remained t- taking a beating. And so uh, I am uh, I appreciate and applaud the new awareness toward uh, self care. I mean, when when you see the tragic death of Tony Perdue, who was a close friend. He wrote the beginning of New World Kitchen, the foreword for me. I was on his show a couple of times. When you see the self-care um, uh, discussion that Sean Brock is bringing to the to the, to the to the to the to the dialogue in our world, among among others uh, um, out there, I mean, in many ways, it was stupid and 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 tragic and harsh. The world that we allowed to exist in the 70s and the 80s um i remember being in one place where a woman who was working with me suddenly there was a puddle underneath her her station because she refused to leave the line
0: yeah. i remember you telling me that story
1: so so instructive to me that wait a minute you know and in some ways i'm responsible for you know kind of this mania attitude that i was willing i mean i at that point in time I I was living away from my family six days and six nights a week, living in the hotel so I could make these restaurants work. My son was uh, nine years old. Janet was having to take care of the the home, the family, while I was following my passion as a chef. And I was kind of like just completely gonzo about it all at that point in time. Later, by the time Normans came along, I, I, I... I had become more of a shepherd and understanding how I needed them to be okay with themselves, to just take care of themselves. And so, you know, I, I, I'm glad that we're seeing a shift in this um, because it's, you know, we need to have a life too. Now, on the other hand, I'm concerned that our business, you know, the restaurant business is how it's going to survive because increasingly it seems to me that very few young people are willing to work 40 hours a week anymore. And so, you know, somewhere between those two crazinesses, you know, the, I don't really want to work four days a week, three days a week, five days, and I don't want to work 90 hours a week. Okay. But somehow for us to be able to attain the kind of proficiency that we want to have, there does have to be this commitment. It doesn't have to be Give up your life to be a chef, but it still means if you're really going to be good in this business, damn, you got to apply yourself. You got to apply yourself. You got to you got to have your notebooks. I call them dream sheets. You got to have your notebooks. Your you know your logs. Your man. You got to have the process and the procedure. And yet you've got to take also enough time to make sure to check in with them and make sure they're not going out and destroying themselves and, and giving up a part, a portion of their ultimate happiness. So it's a, it's a very tough balance, you know, like me personally, uh,
0: I feel very fortunate that I have amazing mentors around me that have, you know, when I have a question about stuff, life, food, you know, I will text you.
1: I love getting chef. Can we have coffee? I'm like, yeah,
0: coffee, you know, and, um, and, you know, I have that relationship with several people, so I find myself very fortunate. And even even then, I'm, like, in this place uh, because I I do love what I do so much and it, it will drive you fucking mad. And you know it does. I mean, because we want it to be so great, you know, and, and I think that's what really separates the, the good ones from the great ones and, and there's so many great ones that don't get any, any notice at all mm-hmm. there's so many
1: of those mm-hmm. um but the it, mythology that exists is sometimes is that you have to kill yourself to obtain greatness right. you know and we've lost we've lost charlie way too young i mean charlie would have been 60 yesterday and i'm thinking jesus christ he's been gone how many years now and he um. would have just been 60 i mean it wasn't only cooking that did it the culinary life i mean it was there was some pre-existing conditions with his you know with his body that 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 ended it but there are so many that have um that have have crashed and burned and and um so this is a good thing this part of the conversation is part of the educational part of the conversation somewhere we find the balance what's having the conversation that's very important you know like i you know, I, I several
0: times need to tell myself, like, you need to fucking relax. Like, just take it fucking easy. Like, go home, smoke a cigar, take it easy. Put your books away. Put your notebook away. Just, like, do nothing for once. You know, it's tough because um, when you say what, that thing that drives you to greatness, what is greatness in our industry? We don't fucking know. There's no, like... um all the things that, what are all the things? It's really, it's more like an internal thing that what is the question you're trying to answer for yourself? And you know, I'm, I just turned 34 and I, I still ask myself that, like, what am I doing? What are you trying to do? Who are you talking to? What is the conversation you're trying to have? And for so many chefs that want to make a difference, that is the struggle that they live with on a daily basis. So to take that and then add on top of that, now you're responsible for 25 young people and their development and their mental health. You know, that's, that in and of itself is a lot of responsibility too. You know, I so that this weekend I worked uh, both brunch shifts and you know, like I'm the two type of brunch guys. I'm like a really pleasant one or I'm a fucking animal. It's like one of the two. Because, you know, I mean, we all know how brunch works. So, midway through brunch, I always have to ask myself, you need to take a deep breath and you just need to relax. Take it easy. But I would say that eight years ago, I wouldn't give a fuck and I would just go. I would just go, just beat yourself up against the wall and just figure it out. But now that we are all very aware and willing to have this conversation, is the only reason that I stopped myself and I asked myself, what are you doing? Take it easy go outside, walk in a circle, come back. You know, it's like, it's those things. And and obviously losing someone as important to all of us as Anthony Bourdain was, you know, I think that struck a nerve. And there was several people before that, you know, that we lost that weren't that. Yeah. I mean, losing Anthony Bourdain
1: to this mental struggle was apocalyptic. Absolutely. I mean, it was his greatest I, legacy is not going to be uh, no reservations or kitchen confidential. His greatest legacy will be the self-care movement.
0: Right. And and it's that was like such a big slap in the face of so many people.
1: Because Absolutely. It was Horrible. like, what are we doing now?
0: What are we doing this for? You know, and sometimes it, it takes longer to figure out that the answer to that question.
1: It does. We're, you know, human beings. We're very we're, we're we learn only through tragedy, it seems, half the time. Right. I mean, we, we learn a lot through joy, but we learn a lot through getting our asses kicked and losing people. We must say hello.
0: Hello. It's okay. Thank you for coming. It's good seeing you.
1: That's the upside of being in the business right there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's one of the all so many upsides. I mean, you know, but it, it, there is so many great things. It's not all bad by, by no means. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's no. so many, like, great the people, the food, like when I was uh, younger and I was making like nothing and I'm like, I overcooked a piece of foie gras. Let me try that. That's, that's (laughs) a perk in life. You know, like not how, I don't know how many people would say, yeah, I had foie gras on a Tuesday. (laughs) I drank like amazing bottles of wine and I had great cocktails and I met in, I mean, just the opportunity that we cooked for Charlie Trotter when I was at 180. I mean, it was like, so honestly, when Charlie walked into the restaurant, it's like everybody froze. It's like Charlie Trotter. Whoa. You know what I mean? Because we had already gotten over the hump, like we're working for Norman Van Aken. But now it's like Charlie Trotter walked into the building. It's like silence. It's like you'd hear a needle drop, you know? Um, so there's, there's so many incredible well, when things. When
1: you care about, care about food and restaurants the way we do, you know it's it's being able to have the access to the to the people that you admire and one of the greatest things that I've had so much fun doing is to do the chef dinners or be a part of other people's chefs dinners um, that we've had so we could you know we could bring those people in to cook with you folks yeah uh, or in my or in, on the other side I would go to New Orleans and cook with Emeril, and then he would bring in. You know, chefs from around New Orleans, or chefs from around the, the United States, or Charlie, who was the all-time greatest at this, because Charlie would bring in nine chefs from around the world, and it would be the who's who of yeah. America. And we would every time we'd go to the restaurant, Eight Sixteen West Armitage, and there'd be a, a team photo taken on the steps of that restaurant, and you could just you know see us young our young faces on the on the on those stairs. And, oh my God, you know. There's Emeril, and there's Charlie, and there's Carrie Simon, and there's Jonathan Waxman, and there's Gunther oh, Seeger. Yeah, no, yeah. Jonathan Waxman. Yeah. And then, you know, we cooked with um, uh, Freddy Day. Girard- and, uh, I mean, having that, ha- creating the access or being around the access of it, that is, that's one of the, the greatest parts of it. I, I saw, I I saw a note that I'd written to myself the other day. Well, I found it the other day, but it was from, like, 2003. I was on the road 75 days that year doing events around the country. That's and incredible. I wrote down the cities that we were in, and it was just like, wow, that was amazing that we had that available to us as part of our job, that we got to go do those things and interact with those people and... And interface and share our cuisine and what we were doing, and we would see what they were doing, taste what they were doing, and then, of course, having the parties afterward, and being in these other places and sharing in the um, it all. And I and I hope that in this day and age of the constancy of the internet, that people just don't get too burned out and feel like they're always in competition with how come they haven't, you know, how come they don't make this much money by having written a cookbook or how come they don't have four restaurants or nine restaurants and why don't they have something in Vegas or you know Abu Dhabi or some other place. Right. I mean, please don't don't let your life become so um, affected by what you don't have. Mm. Think about the things that you do and you'll be better off. 100%. percent say, but true.
0: Yeah, I I um, I, I really dislike uh competition shows you know the food ones and i only say that because for me food is is not competition it's community you know it is the building blocks of community it is what makes people come to one table and have a conversation which is what we lack so much of we're not conversing anymore we're competing and i'm all about competition i played football for a long time i fucking love it it's great but when i'm sitting here Talking to you about food, I don't want to compete with you. I want to cook with you. I want to eat together. I want to drink. I want to have a good time. You know, like it's it's so. Uh, I just want to be better than you. Like I just be the best
1: you can be. Just be the best you can be. We brought up Jacques Pepin's name earlier. Jacques What a great book, by the way, The Apprentice. If
0: you haven't oh. read it, is an incredible.
1: Book. And he hates the competition shows. Yeah. you know, he really thinks they're 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 um, damaging. And I agree. I was offered the uh, the opportunity to be on Top Chef Masters. And I really kicked it around for a while, and it was at a time when I could have used the boost, yeah. for, you know, for business sake. And I thought, you know what? No, I don't. I mean, I, I I was on Top Chef, and you know, was a judge and all that stuff. But then I saw, like, you know, what it might be like, you know, how they could turn me into any character yeah, they yeah. want to turn me in. I could be really famous for nine months, but famous as what? A character? Yeah. A caricature. Thanks and I just said. I, I, I'm stepping back. I'm not doing it.
0: Yeah, that's fucking great.
1: I fucking love that, man. That's amazing.
0: Um, I guess uh, we'll start to wind down here. Do we have wind yeah. down music?
2: We'll, we'll put some in here. All right, good. Yeah.
0: Um, was that the wind down? Well, we're starting we're to just, wind down. We're just oh, okay. We're like, hey, we're winding down. We're going to, this is the last part of the show. All right, so I'll put the wind down music now. It's the final
1: countdown. So Chef, thank you so much for doing this. I Michael, it's a pleasure. You know, thank you for having me on Pencon uh, Podcast. There it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: it was a good time. Uh we could literally talk for hours, I'm sure, as we have in the past. Um oh, we're just getting started. Yeah. I can I can only say thank you for everything you've done for me and for the entire community. Uh if, they haven't, if people haven't thanked you, they should. Um,
1: and that's
0: all I really got here. You right?
1: thank me every day by continuing to succeed, Mr. 34? 34, yeah, 34. 34 years old? You, by, by continuing the success of what you're doing, by building the teams, by having a delicious, hospitable restaurant here that we mm-hmm. can come to and enjoy. I walked in here tonight, and two of the most loyal customers we ever had at the original Normans we're sitting there enjoying themselves, and then within a moment, I realized they—this is their place. This is where they come to.
0: Yeah, they've been and here a lot. They had Shout very, out to what? Patton
1: Harold. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, They're the best. And then I'm so looking forward to, uh, you know, to returning to Chugs, but I'm and I'm also so looking forward to Nave and the team that you're putting together in there. I can't wait for people to taste what Michael Beltran's and Justin Flitz. Vision for this restaurant is going to be, and how they're going to interpret and give um, more storytelling to South Florida. We're excited through food.
0: We're, we're definitely excited. I um, it's been a busy year, uh, so I'm ready to take a nap
2: next year. But
0: cool. you know, I guess we could start our shameless
2: plugs. Yeah. So this is where, uh, where this is where think, we're going to cut out.
0: We're going to copy and paste the last one. We're going
2: to copy and paste the last set of shameless plugs here. Uh, we will wrap this up with our usual shameless plugging things before we come back and pretend that we're we, going to shameless
0: uh, plug. Man, that means we're going to plug
2: twice today. We're, we're going to plug. Shameless tw- plugs. We're, you know what we'll do? Well, actually, I will copy and paste I like this that, shameless plugging. I like that. I like, that. I like that. that. The second episode's shameless plugging will Boom. sound super bootleg. Boom. Uh, so you can find Pankong Podcast on all the social media things at Pankong Podcast like a podcast sandwich. <laughs> um, I love it every time. You can uh, find past episodes at dademag.com slash Uh You will find links to all of our things, past episodes, also a link to contribute on Patreon. If you're into what we're doing, you can for as little as a buck a month be a uh, supporter of not this eating. thing and get some exclusive perks i think we're gonna be making stickers we'll probably be doing some t-shirt giveaway stuff we are it's gonna be crazy who's paying for that uh, is paying for all that. <laughs> just like we pay for the kubayashi cup <laughs> it's true <laughs> um, it's true it's sad but it's true it's not sad i would i went way out of my way to make sure the kubayashi cup Jeff, happened. I was didn't very see excited this about trophy this. it was like it was absurd. three feet tall oh it was incredible it was absurd so, um, you can find Ariette at Ariette yeah. Miami.
0: Ariette Miami. Ariette Miami. At, right? at Chug's Diner. At Nave Miami. That's supposed to open soon. Uh, at Lena. Um, what is it,
2: Lania? I think it's. I don't I don't
0: remember. Timeout, Lena. Timeout. I am P I G I N C. That yeah. is correct.
2: P I G to the I N C if you're extra cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was Maybe cool. not. Nah. Okay. Forget it. And then, uh, Norman, do you, do you have anything you want to plug here? Maybe in a slightly more articulate way than we just did our stuff. <laughs> or not. You can be totally inarticulate. That's fine.
1: I'd love them to listen to A Word on Food at WLRN sure. and listen to the show.
2: So uh, is that something Saturday
1: that... mornings at around 8.30 is when it airs live. Um, live in the sense that it's been recorded, but it sure. comes out at around 8.30, 8.32 a.m. depending upon the day. And um, But it's always available online at the WLRN website. Just either Google me or A Word on Food and it's going to come up. And I've done... Three hundred and fifty shows, so there's a lot of material there.
2: And then, okay, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> good stuff.
1: Don't forget thanks, to come Norman. see me at Time Out Market. <laughs> see us,
2: because <laughs> that yeah. place is quite oh good. yeah. Boy. <laughs> All right, thank you, Norman.
1: Thank uh, you so much. Thanks, Nick. Uh,
2: thanks, Mike. Whatever. Yeah, Nick. yeah, whatever.
1: <laughs> thanks for the, thanks for the
0: tasty cigar. That was me. I I, I got the cigar. Yeah. Not Nick. Not the cigar snob. Mike. I
1: love the cigar cart too. That was great.
2: Thanks, Mike. I did that. <laughs> I think we're the first ones
1: to use it, but... We have a cigar cart here so available at like areas. This is the
2: first group that's used a cigar yeah. cart? Oh, wow.
0: I know. You need to get on Cigar Snob and you talk about do. the...
2: What? I don't know what that means. <laughs> that sounds dirtier than I think Cigar Snob is willing to go. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next Oh, man.
1: What a Good stuff. Double,
2: didn't be. Double, 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 didn't be.